I had two best friends in eighth grade. This is, of course, the last time I had multiple friends. That's a joke. Obviously, now I have my frequent guest, Ryan Gilman, plus my dog. But I digress. Back in eighth grade, I had my best friend, Max, that I talked about in the last episode. We always had so much in common. We had similar tastes in music, both loved and still love the New York Yankees, both loved eating buffalo wings and listening to the comedy of Dane Cook. That last one didn't age so well. It is what it is. As much as I love Max and still talk to him regularly, this introduction isn't about the witty, woodworking, reggae drummer with the sweetest German shepherd you've ever met. This little bit here is about my other friend, Kenzie. Kenzie and I had virtually every core academic class together in 8th grade and became fast friends. Her parents were divorced and she lived with her dad and stepmom. Kenzie and I had very different tastes in music. At the time, as you all know, I was into alternative rock, hair metal, and classic rock. She was into exclusively emo pop punk. It was from her that I learned about Fall Out Boy's heartthrob bassist, Pete Wentz, as she had a giant crush on him. While there was virtually no overlap between our music interests, a core tenet of the friendship was the mutual respect we felt for each other's passion for our favorite artists. While Kenzie didn't listen to hair metal or 90s rock, her mom did. While I never got to meet her mom because she lived all the way in Stewart, Florida, three hours from the Orlando suburb we resided in, I thought her mom was the coolest. Right before Kenzie would venture down to South Florida to see her mom, whichever artist I was listening to most frequently at the time, I would ask her if she could see if her mom was also into that artist. The answer was always a resounding yes. Eighth grade was a weird time for sure, and I'm pretty certain most people who attended a school of some sort at that time would agree. So inevitably, Kenzie and I went through a lot together. Unfortunately, towards the end of that school year, I found out that we would be attending different high schools the following year. As the summer leading into ninth grade grew closer, we decided to get each other parting gifts. I honestly can't remember what I got her, but since the timeline supports it, I'm going to go ahead and presume that I got her Fall Out Boy's third studio album, Infinity on High. Whatever it was had something to do with music, I'm sure. When she asked me what I wanted, I responded with the name of a legendary 90s album from an artist still very much relevant even a decade after its release. I had barely scratched the surface with this band at the time, so I figured exploring that album would be a good way to get into their discography. I figured that an album was a fair request since it couldn't cost more than $15 or so. However, as soon as I asked for that, her reaction wasn't what I anticipated. She looked somewhat concerned and replied, Quote, Dove, I don't think I can get you that. I was flabbergasted, honestly, so I understandably inquired as to why that gift wasn't feasible. She responded, quote, I don't think I can afford an okay computer. I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand. Today, for the third Signature Song episode, I will pose the question, what is Radiohead's signature 90s song? In 1985, in Oxfordshire, England, a group of boys attending an independent boys' school called Abingdon School formed a band called On a Friday. The band named themselves as such after the day of the week in which they were permitted to practice in Abingdon's music room. 
The band included Tom York on vocals and guitar, Colin Greenwood on bass, Ed O'Brien on guitar, Phil Selway on drums, and Colin's little brother, Johnny Greenwood, on the keyboard. Well, kind of. Apparently, the previous keyboardist for On a Friday got kicked out for playing too loud. So for months, Greenwood unplugged his keyboards to avoid the criticism that his predecessor got. No one noticed. In fact, Tom York told Greenwood, quote, I can't quite hear what you're doing, but I think you're adding a really interesting texture. As Greenwood's at-home practice continued and he developed his keyboard skills, little by little, he would increase the volume of his keyboards at band practice. While a solid local music scene existed in their community, it favored shoegazing music, which according to shoegazecraze.com, is a subgenre of rock characterized by overwhelmingly loud, distorted guitars and echoing reverb. This signature shoegaze sound de-emphasizes the vocals, often treating the human voice as just an, another instrument in a wash of sonic texture. Anna Friday didn't fit the style, as their influences included Pixies, Talking Heads, The Smiths, and Sonic Youth. Since the band didn't gain all that much traction, in 1987, when members of the band started going off to university, the band's progress stagnated and they didn't play a single gig for years. In 1991, however, Anna Friday regrouped and hit the ground running, sharing a house in Oxford, recording demos and performing frequently within Oxford, most notably at the legendary Jericho Tavern. The relentlessness of their local gigs paid off, as one evening, Chris Hufford, producer for the up-and-coming band Slow Dive, popped into the Jericho Tavern and witnessed On a Friday. Impressed with what he saw, he produced a demo for them at Courtyard Studio, the recording studio he co-owned. The title of the demo was Manic, Manic Hedgehog. Hufford and his partner, Courtyard Studio co-owner Bryce Edge, felt so confident about the band, they became their managers. Following On a Friday's debut demo, bassist Colin Greenwood, employed at a record store at the time, gave the demo to Keith Wozencraft, a sales rep for the recording label EMI. Fortunately for Greenwood and the rest of the band, EMI enjoyed the, enjoyed the demo and signed the band to a five-album deal. However, before signing, EMI mandated that the band change their name. The band ultimately settled on Radiohead, the name of a lesser-known Talking Heads song from their 1986 album True Stories. In September 1992, Radiohead began recording their debut LP at the Chipping Norton Studios in Oxfordshire with producers Paul Coldery and Sean Slade. Coldery and Slade seemed to fit well with Radiohead's alt-rock sound, having worked already with bands central to the genre, such as Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. Following recording a few songs, the band took a break from the studio. During this time, Radiohead worked on a song written by Tom York in the 80s. When they reconvened in Chipping Norton Studios, the band performed the song, which received an enthusiastic applause. The tune was nicknamed The Noise because during the performance, Johnny Greenwood, who by this point was now on guitar, attempted to sabotage the song as he felt it was too serene, quiet, and geared for chart success. Without Greenwood's guitar, the song was merely a soft and melancholy alternative rock track. So right before the chorus, he slammed his hand across the body of his heavily distorted guitar before aggressively strumming with the distortion still prevailing during the choruses and bridge. The producers became so enthralled with this aspect of the song, they placed Johnny Greenwood in the drum room and used a drum mic to record him. The name of this song is Creep. Radiohead finished recording their debut album in November of 1992, and on February 22, 1993, they released their debut record titled Pablo Honey. 
Radiohead derived the album's name from a skit from the Queens-based comedy duo, The Jerky Boys. Apparently, there was a skit in which the duo prank called someone and said, quote, Pablo, honey, please come to Florida. Initially, the album didn't receive much commercial success or recognition, even in their home country. However, in March of 1993, after being introduced to the song Creep by a rep at EMI, Israeli DJ Yoav Kutner played the song on heavy rotation and the song arrived on the Israeli pop charts. This led to the band's first live performance outside the UK in Tel Aviv that month. Just a few weeks later, some radio stations in California began playing the song and in April of 1993, they entered the US rock charts. The song crept its way, no pun intended, to crossover success in the U.S. In June of that year, it peaked at number two on the rock charts, the same month it entered the Billboard Hot 100. In September, it became a top 40 hit, peaking at number 34. Although Creep initially fell on deaf ears in Radiohead's home country, the song's success in the U.S., Israel, and the Netherlands forced the band to re-release the single, much to their chagrin. The re-release proved wise as the album became a hit all throughout Europe and in, and in September of 93, finally cracked the top 10 in the UK. For the album as a whole, Pablo Honey was certified platinum in the United States, the UK, Canada, and Belgium. To date, the album has sold roughly 2 million copies worldwide. Critically, while the album certainly did not receive the accolades of its 90s successors and some of Radiohead's 21st century efforts, Pablo Honey certainly didn't fall victim to the scorn of, vic- of critics. While critical of York's, quote, narcissistic angst, Paul Evans of Rolling Stone praised the album's, quote, feedback and strumming fury of their guitar work and the dynamism of their whisper-to-a-scream song structures, which Evans likened to The Who. The Los Angeles Times gave the score... A review I personally agree with most. Mario Munoz of that publication gave the album two and a half out of four stars, criticizing the band's emulation of 80s UK icons, The Smiths and The Cure. However, he did praise the lyrics and hooks and called Creep, quote, one of the year's most infectious singles. The British publication NME ranked the album as the 35th best album of 1993. While the success of Creep catapulted the band to international stardom, Pablo Honey didn't really generate any other hits, so Creep inevitably became the main reason why people would attend Radiohead concerts. Johnny Greenwood summed up the consequences of that with, quote, We seem to be living out of the same four and a half minutes of our lives over and over again. It was incredibly stultifying. Feeling smothered from Creep's popularity, in combination with the looming pressure from EMI for an even more successful follow-up album and tour, The band simply felt overwhelmed and almost broke up as a result. That tension followed the band into the studio in early 1994 for that follow-up album. Although the band was pleased that John Leckie, who had produced for acts such as Magazine Simple Minds and most notably The Stone Roses, was named to produce the album, EMI tasked the band with only nine weeks to complete recording the album, increasing anxiety within Radiohead, and led to York's alienation towards the rest of the band. York referred to the first couple months of recording as, quote, a total fucking meltdown for two fucking months. A turning point for the album occurred on March 17th, when members of the band, including York, encouraged by Leckie to decompress via night on the town, attended a concert at the garage in London. They saw the legendary and mythical singer-songwriter Jeff Buckley. 
Colin Greenwood noted that all Buckley had on stage with him was a Telecaster and a pint of Guinness. Apparently, Buckley's use of the falsetto, in particular, blew York away. He took that vocal style from Buckley into the recording booth shortly after to work on the song Fake Plastic Trees. The day that York laid down the vocal track, he referred to as, quote, one of the worst days for me. He had apparently shouted at everyone in the band, prompting Leckie to dismiss the rest of the band so he could work with York one-on-one. York then recorded an acoustic version of Fake Plastic Trees in three takes, bursting into tears after the third recording. While the finished product would contain more than just acoustic guitar and vocals, York's recording that day would turn out to serve as the foundation for one of Radiohead's most iconic songs. In mid-April of 94, with the recordings not nearly as far along as EMI wanted, the band took a break from recording in order to gear up for their summer tour. During that tour, a recording of their of one of their new songs, My Iron Lung, from their May 27th performance at the London Astoria ended up on the album, with only York's vocal tracks overdubbed. Following the conclusion of their summer tour, they returned to the studio, albeit a different one. They abandoned the bad vibes of Rack Recording Studios for Richard Branson's Manor Studio in Oxfordshire and finished up at the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London. The post-summer tour recording sessions, sessions proved much less dramatic and much more productive, which Leckie attributed to the band's improved confidence. Finally, much later than EMI's planned October of 94 release, Radiohead released their second studio album, The Benz, on March 13, 1995. The Benz, in addition to the album's title track, is a nickname for decompression sickness most associated with scuba divers that ascend too quickly. While there definitely existed some overlap between Pablo Honey and the Benz, especially with regards to the presence of guitar-driven alternative rock, the Benz established the experimental side of Radiohead that would define the band for the remainder of their ongoing career. The Benz possessed a much wider range of instrumentation, and the band made quantum leaps in terms of dynamics. While Pablo Honey existed as a straightforward alt-rock album, leading to comparisons with American grunge band Nirvana, the Benz contained a bunch of solid ballads, many of which would become big hits or fan favorites such as High and Dry, Street Spirit Fade Out, and the previously mentioned Fake Plastic Trees. Other differences include the prominence of Johnny Greenwood's lead guitar. In Pablo Honey, Greenwood was more reserved. However, he showcased his chops in a much more overt way on the Benz, especially on the experimental opener, Planet Telex, and the more aggressive rock songs such as the title track and my favorite song on the album, Just. The last key differences between the albums rests on Tom York. While there were spurts of his falsetto on Pablo Honey, famously during the bridge of Creep, for example, that Jeff Buckley concert really influenced York as he featured his falsetto voraciously on the Benz, most notably on my other favorite song from the album, My Iron Lung, as well as High and Dry. In terms of songwriting, York opted for a more abstract approach to writing, writing cryptic lyrics at times. Commercially, the Benz fared much better in the band's home country than in the U.S. The album peaked at number four on the U.K. album charts, whereas it only peaked at 88 in the United States, far worse than Pablo Honey's U.S. peak of 32. Despite a relatively poor commercial performance in the U.S., the album performed pretty well in other parts of Europe. The album hit the top 10 in Ireland, Scotland, and Belgium, 
In terms of worldwide sales, the Benz beat Pablo Honey by roughly 600,000 copies. While in the aggregate, no single had the success worldwide of Creep, several singles enjoyed impressive peak positions within the UK and pockets of other parts of the world. In the UK, four singles from the Benz cracked the top 20 with Street Spirit Fade Out peaking at number five. In addition to its peak spot of 17 in the UK, the double A-side single, High and Dry slash Planet to Lex, registered in the top 40 in both Canada and France and became the last Radiohead song to chart on the US Billboard Hot 100 until 2008. Critics for the most part felt that the Benz followed up its predecessor exceptionally well. Upon release, the album received a perfect score from The Guardian. Entertainment Weekly awarded the album with a grade of B+. Tom Sinclair of that publication said of the Benz, quote, Sometimes folky, sometimes rocky. The sophomore album from this English band offers a smorgasbord of guitar flavors, most of them tasty. British publication NME gave the album a 9 out of 10, anointing the record with a rather curious yet endearing analogy, stating, quote, Nearly all of the Benz kicks down the front door, gets off with the best-looking girl in the room, leaps onto a table, and declares with a mighty roar, I am something special indeed. The LA Times gave the album a respectable three out of four stars, praising York's voice as, quote, enticingly enigmatic. In retrospect, praise for the Benz has only gotten stronger. For example, Stephen Earlwine of All Music awarded the album a perfect five out of five, praising the album's, quote, grand and forceful, forceful sound that nevertheless resonates with anguish and despair. Handing out another perfect score, James Slaughter of Blender Magazine characterized the record as, quote, an embarrassment of songwriting riches. Finally, in his retrospective review, Josh Modell of the, AP, of the AV Club said the album, quote, feels remarkably fresh to this very day and praised the album's, quote, deliberate pacing and well-placed peaks and valleys. On May 21st, 1997, Radiohead released their third studio album, OK Computer, which perhaps is their magnus opus. But let's backtrack a little. On September 4th, 1995, legendary British experimental musician Brian Eno invited the band to contribute to his charity record, The Help Album, an idea he designed to benefit children affected by the Bosnian War. Accepting Eno's invitation was a no-brainer for the band, who had recently begun their journey into experimentalism. The catch, though? Radiohead had to complete recording their track for the album in just one day. The band recorded their contribution to the Help album in five hours with producer Nigel Godrich. Godrich worked briefly with the band on the Benz and had also worked in the early 90s as an engineer and producer with UK acts such as Ride, Big Country, and Susie and the Banshees. Radiohead chose to record the song Lucky that they had written earlier in the summer. The song's inception occurred during soundcheck in Japan when Johnny Greenwood experimented with his guitar pedal order. York penned the lyrics about a man surviving a plane crash using his own fears of traveling as inspiration. Throughout 1995 and 1996, Redhead toured relentlessly. In the U.S., they opened for gargantuan names of that era, including Soul Asylum, R.E.M., and Alanis Morissette. The success of Pablo Honey, The Benz, as well as those tours provided the band a ton of leverage within their record label. So when it came time for Radiohead to get ready for their upcoming album, York told EMI, quote, Okay, we want all our own gear, we want our own studio, and we want to work with Nigel. The label got on board with all of that. The band began the recording process in an isolated area in the countryside of southern England near Didcot. 
They recorded in an Apple storage shed, which Nigel Godrich referred to as, quote, a cork box without a toilet. This brief but significant stint near Didcot preceded their 1996 tour with Alanis Morissette. Following that tour, the band resumed working on their upcoming record at St. Catherine's Court and Elizabethan Manor House with a castle-like structure in Bath, England, a property that actress Jane Seymour owned at the time. During their, during their stay at the Manor House, while Johnny Greenwood loved the fact that all they had to worry about was eating and playing music and Colin Greenwood relished in the elegant house's peacefulness and beauty, Tom York got caught up in the age-old rumors that there were ghosts in the house, giving him a bout of insomnia. Perhaps York's lack of sleep contributed to the uneasiness of the record lyrically. Brock Domel of the Arizona State Press referred to the lyrics of the album as, quote, a commentary on the overpowering sense of alienation that results from living in an increasingly self-indulgent and technologically dependent society. The album covers topics including a feeling of rebirth after surviving transportation accidents, fear, insanity, isolation, emotional emptiness, technological advances draining humanity, the evils of neoliberalism, and the quest to enjoy life in the face of anxiety and turmoil. Musically, while The Benz presented Radiohead's gravitation towards experimentalism, OK Computer took that tendency to new heights. The diverse array of influences the band had on repeat while recording, as well as the unique recording opportunities that St. Catherine's Court afforded them, inspired OK Computer's avant-gardism. At the time, they'd been listening to American jazz musician Miles Davis, the White Album by The Beatles, and legendary Italian composer Ennio Morricane, amongst others. The freedom of having the entire house of themselves enabled them to experiment with recording in different rooms and hallways at any hour. Additionally, the band utilized unique instruments such as the Mellotron and Glockenspiel. As I mentioned, Radiohead put out OK Computer in May of 1997. Commercially, OK Computer eclipsed the success of both Pablo Honey as well as the Benz. The album peaked at number one in the UK, Belgium, and Ireland. It hit the top 10 in the Netherlands, Italy, France, Canada, and Australia. Although the peak position of number 21 in the United States doesn't sound sexy, it fared much better than its predecessor and went twice platinum. To date, OK Computer has, told, has sold nearly 6 million copies worldwide, more than double of the band's runner-up. In terms of singles, the band released four, three of which became international hits. OK Computer's first single, Paranoid Android, peaked at number three on the UK singles chart. The single also hit the top 40 in Ireland, Australia, and Italy. Their second single, the timeless ballad Karma Police, peaked at number eight in the UK and hit the top 40 in four other countries, including a top 20 position in Ireland and Italy. The album's fourth single, the deceptively calming No Surprises, peaked at number four in the UK and cracked the top 40 in New Zealand, Ireland, and France. Critically, the album received strong acclaim upon release. Rolling Stone awarded the album four to five stars, with writer Mark Kemp calling the record, quote, a stunning art rock tour de force. David Brown of Entertainment Weekly gave OK Computer a B plus and complimented the album, stating Radiohead's 1997 effort took, quote, British pop to a heavenly new level. The British publication Enemy gave the album a staggering 10 out of 10 rating, calling it, quote, both age defining and one of the most startling albums ever made. As well received as OK Computer resulted out of the gate, retrospectively, the album is considered a masterpiece receiving a perfect legacy score from AllMusic, Blender, and Q Magazine. In 2020, Rolling Stone ranked the album as the 42nd greatest album of all time. 
In 2014, the U.S. National Recording Preservation Board inducted OK Computer's placement in the Library of Congress for its, quote, sound recording that has had significant cultural, historical, or aesthetic impact in American life. While Radiohead released some of their most iconic work in the 21st century, including their legendary records Kid A and In Rainbows, they changed their sound immensely as they entered the new millennium. So Radiohead as a rock band exists almost exclusively in the 90s, and their success and acclaim during that decade cements them as integral to the 90s music identity. Now that we're familiar with Radiohead's history and discography prior to 2000, it's time to identify what their signature 90s song is. As I always do, I created an anthology of their 10 most popular 90s songs on Spotify to identify their common themes musically and lyrically. All of these songs currently have at least 85 million plays on Spotify. With regards to music, I noticed that three distinct sounds define their work in the 90s. First, in line with their breakout hit, the 90s saw more than a handful of Radiohead songs present an aggressive rock side to them, coated with abrasive strumming and borderline frightening distortion. The second includes their ballad, their ballads, abundant in passion, acoustic instruments, and Tom York's buckley influence falsettos. The final flavor, heavy in experimentalism, occurred in small doses during the bends, but really came to fruition on OK Computer. Some of the band's most iconic 90s moments contain quirks uncommon in British pop-slash-rock music, such as computerized voices, dissonant collapses, and unsettling samples. Lyrically, Tom York never strays away from expressing his thoughts on society as well as his inner demons, no matter how dark those musings get. Upon researching York's lyricism, words used to describe the themes of York's writing include depression, self-loathing, alienation, paranoia, and insanity. With regards to his bleak outlook on society at large, he writes quite a bit about his opposition to capitalism and consumerism, as well as the bombardment of sentiment and the futility of existence. So taking all that into account, I feel that Radiohead's signature 90s song should contain elements of in-your-face alternative rock, experimentalism, with at least sprinkles of ballads. In addition, the song's lyrics should be rife with angst and inner turmoil, lyrical themes which I don't think will be hard to find. For Radiohead's signature 90s song, I could have picked, no surprises, the 10th song from the legendary OK Computer. To date, the song remains the most streamed tune from that album on Spotify with roughly 480 million plays. Its music video currently has 180 and 87 million hits on YouTube. So the song's legacy within the Radiohead fan community as well as the alt-rock community remains alive and well. Perhaps the stylistically most gentle song within their discography, Tom York composed this song with the Beach Boys' pet sounds in mind. The band organized the guitar arrangement to mirror the song Wouldn't It Be Nice from that all-time great 60s classic. Additionally, the song contained the use of the glockenspiel, all of these factors contribute to No Surprises' childlike sound. As soft, sweet, and innocent as the music sounds, the lyrics are that amount of, well, sad boy. Tom York communicated that the song is about, quote, someone who's trying hard to keep it together but can't. Beyond that, the lyrics are up for interpretation. 
The final lines of the first pre-chorus, quote, I'll take a quiet life, a handshake of carbon monoxide, in my humble opinion, might refer to two themes. One being the narrator's intention to take their own life. The other possible theme that the first pre-chorus indicates rests on the toxicity of desiring that life without alarms, without surprises. Whatever a handshake with carbon monoxide refers to, it's not pleasant, on brand for the quintet. So while the lyrics bleed vintage Radiohead, the gravitation towards dream pop rather than experimentalism and the lack of any in-your-face Johnny Greenwood guitar riff renders this song a classic for sure, but not quite a signature song. I could have picked Fake Plastic Trees, the fourth track from The Benz. The colossal ballad currently has 243 million streams on Spotify and over 65 million plays on YouTube. Fake Plastic Trees significance goes beyond its musical quality as it signaled a turning point on the record on the recording of the bends which was in a precarious state prior to york's tear-filled time in the vocal booth the bends of course went on to establish the true musicianship of radiohead which only progressed over the subsequent decade the, the soothing ballad ranks as perhaps the prettiest sounding song on the record in addition to York's beautiful Jeff Buckley-inspired falsettos and his soft strumming of the acoustic guitar, the incorporation of the cello, viola, and violin, as well as the Hammond organ, elevate the ballad to emotional levels previously untouched for Radiohead. Structurally, beginning with York's vulnerable voice, which overpowers his light acoustic guitar playing, the song gradually acquires instrumentation and consequently intensity, leading to its status as an epic ballad. Lyrically, the song is rather ambiguous. Tom York has never explicitly stated the meaning of the song, though he appears to draw parallels between the inauthenticity of consumerism and a disingenuous romantic partnership. While Johnny Greenwood does put some oomph in fake plastic trees with some alt-rock electric guitar licks in the latter half of the song, he stops short of anything too gnarly. And the lyrics get pretty melancholy. It doesn't get nearly as dark as York proved himself capable of writing during the 90s. So while Fake Plastic Trees remains a fan favorite and perhaps a member of the time caps, uh, capsule for any Gen Xer that fancies a good tragic love adjacent song, it certainly evades too many requirements to obtain the title of Radiohead's signature 90 song. I could have picked Karma Police, the sixth track on the band's Magnus Opus OK Computer. With over 425 million streams on Spotify and its music video with over 94 million views on YouTube, Karma Police has transformed into one of Radiohead's most enduring classics. The piano-driven ballad remains one of Radiohead's most accessible post-The Benz era tunes. While the song largely basks in simplicity, the song isn't without experimentalism and 60s psychedelic pop backing vocals. Speaking of 60s pop, Karma Police's piano introduction emulates that of the Beatles' 1968 song Sexy Sadie from the White Album. As I alluded to earlier, the song collapses mightily during its conclusion when guitarist Ed O'Brien produces eerie feedback utilizing the digital display of his, of his advanced music system. The origin of the tune dates back to their touring days pre-OK Computer. Apparently, as Johnny Greenwood explained, quote, Karma Police was a catchphrase, for while we were on tour, whenever someone was behaving in a particularly shitty way, we'd say, the karma police will catch him sooner or later. But it's not a revenge thing, just about being happy with your own behavior. Lyrically, Tom York has commented that they are not entirely serious. And the song even gives him a little chuckle. 
though he has also commented that the song deals with the dirty looks people get from time to time, probably in the workplace from bosses, since York has also stated about Karma Police, quote, it's for someone who has to work for a large company. This is a song against bosses. Fuck the middle management. So although within Karma Police exists many elements central to Radiohead's 90s ethos, the lack of lyrical seriousness or anything abrasive other than Ed O'Brien's concluding feedback prevents the song from reaching that coveted throne of signature 90s Radiohead song. For my first hot take of the episode, I will anger casual Radiohead fans slash fans in general of 90s rock and presumably win the respect of hardcore radio fans. I could have picked but did not creep the second song from their debut album, Pablo honey with nearly 1.3 billion streams on Spotify and 861 million views on Spotify creep transcends rock or grunge or whatever label you want to slap on it. So as the sixth most streamed 90 song on Spotify, obviously this song connects to people still in 2023, but why? Well, Creep is unique in the sense that the energy of the music matches the tone of the lyrics. And listeners know that the music matches the lyrics because, probably more than any other song in Radiohead's discography, Tom York enunciates every goddamn word, allowing listeners to really focus on the helpless and pathetic ethos of the song. Written supposedly in 1987, while York attended Exeter University in southwest England, he tells the autobiographical story of a man with such an obsession over a girl that he follows her around. Beyond that, the song explores York's struggles with his own self-realization of masculinity. While the lyrics are rather gloomy and lethargic, highlighted by its chorus of, quote, But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. Johnny Greenwood finds a silver lining in saying that the song is, quote, about recognizing what you are. Anyways, speaking of Mr. Johnny Greenwood, it's his attempt to sabotage the song with his aggressive strums drenched in distortion that carries the unforgettable self-loathing anthem. Speaking for myself humbly, Johnny Greenwood's abrasiveness at the end of the verses, through the choruses, and during the bridge always fires me up and is the catchiest thing to come from a guitar in the world of popular music during the 90s. But as much as the song has connected with people over the past 30 years, if you listen to any other song in their discography that has aged well enough to still possess relevancy, you'll see that Creep is an outlier. It doesn't possess any semblance of the ballad element found throughout Radiohead's 90s hits, and the old experimentalism comes inadvertently from Johnny Greenwood trying to be, well, an asshole. So while one could argue that Creep is the signature rock song of the decade, I will not argue that it's Radiohead's signature 90s song. Well, folks, once again, we have made it. Also from OK Computer, Radiohead's signature 90s song goes to the album's first single and second track, Paranoid Android. Throughout the history of popular music, every few years, a song of epic proportions in terms of style and merit hits the airwaves and leaves listeners forever in awe. In the 60s, we had Jimi Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower, A Day in the Life by The Beatles, as well as House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. In the 70s, the three movements of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody sent shivers down our spine, and War Pigs by Black Sabbath showed the true musicianship heavy metal was capable of. The 80s saw Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five change the perception and the face of hip-hop in one fell swoop, and In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins made a pop masterpiece with only darkness and drums. 
In the first half of the 90s, Nine Inch Nails subverted the perception and the rules of mainstream accessibility with Closer. But in the second half of the 90s, it was Radiohead's Paranoid Android, which takes listeners on a six and a half minute ride, bringing out the best of each member of the band and blowing listeners' minds in the process. Like Bohemian Rhapsody, Paranoid Android contains multiple distinct sections. Each section presents a different timbre, tone, and intensity. The first section represents OK Computer well in the aggregate with a trippy art rock vibe before subtly transitioning into a style I can only describe as demonic funk, showcasing Colin Greenwood's chops on the bass. The second section gets super gnarly, culminating with Johnny Greenwood's most bombastic guitar solo within Radiohead's catalog. The energy shifts entirely during the third section, with a ballad-like tempo, acoustic instruments galore, and angelic choral backing vocals. The song concludes with an aggressive fourth section that reverts in part back to the second section, but this time with a futuristic guitar solo from Greenwood with almost cartoonish effects before ending abruptly. The song's title comes from the character Marvin the Paranoid Android in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Since that character was visibly depressed, Tom York thought it would be funny to name the song after him as he thought the media viewed the radio frontman as depressed. The voice of the 90s computer-generated text-to-speech command adds to the experimentalism as the song of the song with its various spoken lines in the song's first section. Lyrically, a Los Angeles bar filled with people high on cocaine inspired the words of the song, especially a woman who became unjustifiably violent after York accidentally spilled a drink on her. The woman is referred to in the lines, quote, Ambition makes you look pretty ugly, kicking, squealing, Gucci little piggy. York stated that the meeting of Paranoid Android has to do with, quote, Chaos, chaos, utter fucking chaos. Throughout the song, York makes hints at anti-capitalist sentiments, schizophrenia, gruesome punishment, and severe anxiety. The most chaotic lines, if you will, include the first verse, quote, I'm trying to get some rest from all the unborn chicken voices in my head. As well as in the second verse with, quote, when I am king, you'll be first against the wall. But now back to the song's relevance. Although it doesn't have the streams of, say, Creep or No Surprises, it's 185 million streams on Spotify, certainly ain't too shabby, and its rank at number four on Pitchfork's list of the 200 greatest tracks of the 90s proves its status as a true classic. But beyond that, through the experimentalism found in the song, the incorporation of gnarly rock, thoughtful art rock, and angelic ballads, in combination with its borderline frighteningly dark lyrics, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Paranoid Android is, most certainly, Radiohead's signature 90s song. I met my next guest roughly 12 years ago. The first thing I said to him was, you look like Jeff Buckley. He took it as a compliment and immediately after we got IHOP. Anyways, he's been one of my closest friends for over a decade when he's not pouring beers and mead. You can find him playing his sweet finger picking with a pint of your finest Pilsner at his side. Please welcome Dill Lancaster. Happy to be here. How's it going, Dove? Good. 
Good. How are you doing? So you got like six new jobs or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, two two new jobs, keeping me uh keeping me on my toes. How how have uh, have they been so far? Oh, pretty good. Uh, it's been fun. Like um, the the brewery is great, but I mean, I mean the brewery is actually phenomenal there. But their um breweries are a bit of kind of a known quantity at this point, whereas uh, working at the meadery um is a like I mean people know of me kind of for the most part. But it is a bit of it's very much a new thing. So it's yeah. been, yeah, been fun it, seeing people's reactions to it. It's a new thing. And also, it's so like, I don't really know anything about mead, but I knew I know sure. it's like it has like it could have either a little bit of alcohol in it or like a lot of alcohol in it. Yeah, that... yeah. T- fair. Typically, they'll be um, kind of at wine strength for the most part. Uh, and you can have session meads as well. But even some of the session meads will be kind of anywhere from at least the ones we, we uh, put out are going to be anywhere from like six to nine-ish percent awesome um, awesome and are, are the places new i i know the metery is new right yes the metery we're staring our soft opening uh dead words is about a year and a half open uh a year uh open for a year and a half um but um zamarium joe the, what, the co-owner there he's been bottling it for years and has developed this like really impressive reputation um because i mean honestly like i've had mead before but then trying this stuff was kind kind of kind of blew my mind a little bit awesome so what's the name of the place again uh zamarium and that's and that's in orlando yeah right right on mills like pretty much right across from mills pub so if you're ever if you're ever in orlando if you're you know for the families listening if you're ever you know at disney right and you want something new zanarium is uh is the place to check out there you it is. See, so th- you... this was uh, my one thing I do on the podcast, right? Where is this it? Just the plug for Zamarium? Yeah, that's why you did this. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't care about Radiohead. <laughs> yeah, right. I do. This is uh, my 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 decade of fandom has just been a long con to plug my new job. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're we're a fan of the slow burn cons. Yes. You know, best kind. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Absolutely. Um, and so. Um, you know, I always start, you know, these signature song or really any episode um, with a new guest with these first few questions. So because I'm always interested, you know, I've known a lot of these people that I've interviewed um, on this podcast for years, but I don't really know the history of their their music listening. And that's always fascinating to me. So uh, we'll start with, you know, currently, you know, most currently, what kind of music, you know, have you been listening to, Dylan? Fair. Um, honestly, man, the Oppenheimer soundtrack, uh, the, the score for that movie is actually kind of uh Kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, that's not not that it's all I've been listening to lately, but um, no, like that, like it, it's incredible. Um, like one one track from the from the score, it's like maybe two and a half minutes long, but there's something crazy like twenty two tempo changes just within that, and it's executed in a way that's uh, I've had, uh, I don't know. Just so it's very all encompassing. Yeah, I I need I need to watch watch that movie. It's like you know one of my big priorities. Um, come um, you know in the next month or so. But um, who who does the uh, the score for it? You know, uh, Ludwig Göransson. I might be butchering his last name. Um, but um, he's been kind of popping up and uh, doing a lot of scores lately. Um, but uh, you know, you know, he's pretty great. Um, but yeah, but um, yeah, beyond that, um, we're really been listening to a lot of the smile. So I guess it's good that we're doing the can, the can radio you tell thing. can you tell our listeners that um, are not Tom York stands, uh, you know what that means, the smile? 
Oh, yeah, gotcha. The Smile. It's a side project, essentially, of Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, you know, two of the, two, two of of the people that I songwriters. Two of the, uh, that, you know, for better or worse, that I talked about the most in this uh, in the monologue. Oh, yeah, fair, fair. Um, and uh, they kind of uh, I can't I can't think of the, the name of the drummer, but he he's absolutely fantastic. Um, they kind of got with uh, they formed a, a trio with with this drummer. And uh, they're they're phenomenal. Like, uh, don't get me wrong, I love Philip Solway as a drummer. He's so crucial to kind of keeping Radiohead grounded and together and kind of definitely know, definitely of... underrated. Oh, absolutely. Him and Colin Greenwood as a as a rhythm section are, yeah. are, are well, phenomenal. Yeah. Like, we... they, they they lay the groundwork for Johnny and Tom and uh, Ed to kind of do a bit of the more I don't know esoterica stuff that they kind of sometimes wander into sonically. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, so what kind of music, and this is, a, I always love hearing this, what kind of music were you spoon-fed as a child? Uh, classic rock, um, I would say. Um, when I was maybe, um, maybe from the, the years, the ages 10 to 16, or maybe let's say 11 to 16, I don't know, splitting hairs at this point, I was uh, kind of what I would kind of consider like one of those like classic rock douchebags, where it's like, and now, and now oh, you're just music. And now you're All just the music bag, was in the sixties so. and the seventies, man. Despite me being this like you know stupid little kid, Dylan, you missed my um, joke. I, oh, said, I missed it. What'd you say? I, I I said, and now you're just a douchebag. Oh, I did lay that one up for you, didn't I? That's fair. No, that's fair. I'll take it. I'll take that one on the chin. So, uh, so what? Um, but what? When did you start like discovering music for your own? That kind of you know removed you a little bit from that classic rock uh, kick. This had. actually ties very well into, into the episode of, so I'm, I'm glad you asked. Now, um, so essentially, I was, uh, um, so you know, my brother, my older brother, Tim, he's someone who's always kind of had a very profound uh, influence on me musically. Um, I was flipping through kind of his uh, CD collection, you know, one of those old school books just filled with CDs, and uh, OK Computer was in it. And, uh, I was like, oh, all right, I've I've heard a thing or two about this band Radiohead, me being, you know, this 16-year-old kid, and uh, I listened to it, and it blew my mind, and kind of from there, um, started listening to a lot of Radiohead, and then um, the next, uh, and then I remember, and then I read an interview with Johnny Greenwood with him kind of hyping up Grizzly Bear, and that kind of, fr from there, it just kind of sprung, I just started kind of figuring things out. Or on my own terms, so, what I like. So go, going through your brother's uh, CD collection, that's when you first heard of Radiohead, or had you heard of them previously? I'm, I've heard the name. I've heard the name. Um, and um, it's one of those things that when I saw that he had a copy of OK Computer, I was like, it's like, okay, I guess, you know, I guess I'll finally check it out. Interesting. Very interesting. Because for me, that was the, well, the first album I listened to in its entirety was OK Computer, but, um, you know, we're going to talk about the first song that I heard about, heard from them in a bit. Um, but uh, so bef um, I, I originally was going to ask a question about songs first, but since you mentioned OK Computer, um, my question for you is what are your top three Radiohead albums? Oof, that is a tough one. Um, I'd say right now, it's hard to put them in a particular order, but... Um, Let's just say, OK, Computer, Kid A, and Rainbows. So uh, you got 
you that's exactly my list so hey look at us yeah, yeah. and i and i and it's not a lot i had a you know uh you know a mutual friend of ours alejandro was visiting recently and we had the conversation and that's what i said so you can ask him not that he'll remember but you know i uh, you know bless that man bless, bless that him man. bless he, him he, he, he'll he, be on he'll be on the podcast at some point um so yes. now that we've talked about radiohead albums just you don't have to like think super in depth about it just like first song first few songs that come to your mind when i say like what are some of your favorite radiohead songs okay um do, 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 do. uh weird fishes uh optimistic Ooh, that's a great uh, one it is right uh idiot a, a rare moment in kid a when they play instruments yeah i know right well technically tree fingers is three minutes is like a three minute guitar solo technically really so he's just, i mean it's it's yeah. it's not a, it's not a guitar solo in like the sense that you think of it but it is right, just right like ambient guitar sounds right um let down paranoid android street spirit um burn the witch actually that that's one from is... uh, moon shape pool right yes that's yeah. the one i i uh need to listen to that album again i only listened to it a couple times um but i remember enjoying it so oh it's a great record yeah um those are all great songs that you mentioned um and uh so you know we talked about we've talked a little bit about okay computer and kid a and for those that don't know kid a was uh i didn't mention in the monologue but that's the that was their first album in the 21st century and to me i think that kind of signaled like a really drastic change in their overall sound mm -hmm. um but why do you think those the albums like okay computer and kid a specifically you know have such esteem in the popular music community well, I think um, they kind of take uh, kind of the I, 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 I've always found the term art rock a little pretentious because, you know, music is art, rock is art, right, you know, right in a sense. But um, but at the same time, there is a sense that when you when you listen to something like, OK, computer, there, there's I don't know this um weight behind it, for, for lack of a better word. And so but yet. I mean, you, you you look at it. They 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 they're like um, kind of like a prog band that doesn't fall into kind of the pitfall pitfalls of a lot of kind of prog music, I guess. Because, yeah, I would say um, it's like, yeah, I would say it's like it's prog, but it's not indulgent that you find. Like, yes, a lot of, yes, like, so, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it because um, I know I know yeah I, I know um, a lot of, like a lot of the a lot of the lads from Radiohead uh i don't know why i called them that um they'd actually hate prog music because again sometimes well, they, it is it just I happens feel to like, be a bit masturbatory i feel like the musicians of radiohead hate a lot of things oh i'm sure i'm sure they're lovely i'm sure yeah, they're yeah. yeah yeah no i'm i'm being facetious but um <laughs> But uh, what do you think distinctly, and I, and I made it, uh, and I kind of alluded to it, talking about how Kid A kind of represented a new sound. Mm -hmm. What what to you distinguishes their 90s sound, which is, the, you know, the topic of this episode from, you know, what they did in the, what or what they've done in the 2000s? Uh, oh, the boops and the beeps. Uh, the boops and the beeps. The boops and the beeps? Yes. Don't, no, it, yeah, I, mean, I would say they kind of took what they, um kind of built they kind of built this foundation with okay computer and the bends and all that and um then kind of ripped away the basis of it which is you know the the kind of um 
rock music aspect of it while still kind of keeping a lot of the the principles behind it if if that makes any sense and um yeah like a lot of bands will kind of switch up genres and whatnot and sometimes it just sounds like they're doing it for you know no reason whatsoever which which is fine bands are of course right changing for the sake of change yeah yeah absolutely but um but i but it felt very purposeful with kid a and um and that and that was just and i don't know just it just leads to a very unique and uh fascinating listening experience yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one, I just kind of looking over the questions I prepared and I didn't uh, have a specific question about the Benz. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because, you know, I, I knew a few songs from the Benz prior to getting <clears> into <throat> it. You know, obviously like High and Dry and My Eye yeah. and Long, etc. But like there is just some unbelievable songs on that album. And oh, absolutely. Me, I think you can make an argument that's like one of like that's like a top 10 90s rock album because it real. I mean, it really is a rock album. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I love that, and and uh, and I also didn't realize, and I and I, you know, I mentioned Jeff Buckley, and that's a, you know, I think a pretty big part of the foundation of our friendship, and mm-hmm. uh, I didn't realize like how important that concert was to the history, the survival of Radiohead. I, I didn't realize that that was really interesting learning about. Yeah, yeah, wasn't it? What they they went to see Jeff Buckley, and then they uh, went back to the studio and uh, finished recording "Fake Plastic Trees." Yeah, and because apparently like up until then it was just like it was really bad vibes. Um, gotcha. And I and apparently like after Tom York recorded the vocals, um, and I think it was like three takes. But after he recorded it, he just like had um, you know such a cathartic moment, and he just like burst into tears. Um, and then like the rest of the recording of the Benz, you know, as legend has it, um, was much smoother. Huh. Interesting. Um, yeah. No, it's uh, that's that's fascinating. And yeah, and so just uh, you know, anytime we can, I can shout out Jeff Buckley. I I do like oh, to do that. good old Jeffrey yeah. B. Um, and so I know we talked a little bit about Kid A and uh, Moonshape Pool. Um, but what do you think, like overall, of Radiohead's twenty first century albums? And I so, you know, Hail to the Thief, Amnesiac, etc. I mean, they're they're phenomenal. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, um, even you might look at like, like an album. Like I know a lot of people kind of put King the King of Limbs on the back burner. I mean that's a great record. I love, love that album. Yeah, yeah, it's a great record. Very like um very, very more texture based, I would say, um musically. But um no, phenomenal, phenomenal uh piece of work. And I, granted I am a bit biased because that was I, I that's that was the um album that came out like right after I uh, right before I saw them live. So they were playing a lot of tracks off that one. And I mean those songs just explode live in in a, in a wonderful way. So, I mean, I would say, yeah, as far as their 21st century uh, output definitely puts up, uh, holds up compared to their, you know, 20th century work. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to I'm going to read you off um, the names of a few songs and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Right. OK. Yeah. Or what you think they have. Where do you think I'm getting up by reading you these songs? OK, so I gotcha. have. I want it that way by the Backstreet Boys, uh, "Losing My Religion" by REM, uh, "All Star" by Smash Mouth, and uh, "Wanna Be" by the Spice Girls. What do those songs all have in common? Do you think? Oh, that's a. I okay, gave you. So... I gave you no context, but you yeah, know, no. This is. A, but you're a creative is... guy, so I think that you'll get something interesting. Oh, man! Um, Leonard Cohen ghost wrote all of them. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, uh-huh. actually, yeah. No, it's actually um, John, John Prine uh, ghost wrote them. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. my bad. God, yeah. I knew I was. I knew it was close. Um, let's see. I want it that way. Losing my religion. All star, and um, I think I feel like I'm missing one. Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Wannabe. Okay. Um. Um. I guess uh, looking for a a, a sense of. Uh, Belonging in a in a modern and increasingly um, disjointed world, maybe. Beautiful, but no. Okay. okay. Um, no, these are all songs that on that are ninety songs mm-hmm. that on Spotify have fewer streams than Creep by Radio. Oh wow! Look at that. So the reason that I asked that, and, and to, that's, I want to establish, I mean, you know, those songs, I Want It That Way, Losing My Religion, right, All Star right. and Wanna Be, I mean, those are just I, 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 iconic pop songs as iconic pop songs. Absolutely. Yeah. But Creep by Radiohead, this like, for lack of a better, you know, description, is just like this pathetic, you know, pseudo grunge song, right. um, has more, has sustained more, you know, success over the years, just in terms mm-hmm. of what, you know, people want to hear. So my question for you is like, why do you think? And I love Creep, by the way, but why okay. do you think that Creep has sustained the success and popularity it has? I mean, it's it's one of those things that's um, just intrinsically relatable to uh, what a lot of people feel without necessarily wanting to talk about it. You know, no one likes to express those feelings, um, and they do it in a way that's very cathartic. I mean, shout out to Johnny Greenwood's little guitar punch right there, right before the chorus. Um, hell of a vocal performance by by York. And um, and even like this, the song, it's like. It's like simple, it's like pretty. Like the chord progression on, on the surface is simple, but then you dive deep into it and it's a it's a weird progression. I mean, right. G G major um, B major, which is a weird one. C major and then flip into C minor right at the the tail end of the verses. Right. Um, how, how, so, many, how many keys do you have? Do you have in, in that in those four chords? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, but but it works. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's both. It, but but it does. If it's it, but at the same time, it's formulaic. But then kind of um, I, you different, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. And do you ever find yourself? Because like I know that probably the, most of the Radiohead you listen to is probably not from Pablo Honey. Um, do you ever find yourself coming back to listening to that song, or is that something that it's like, okay, I appreciate it, I understand, yeah. you know, its importance to the band's history and popular rock music and as a whole, but it's not really something that I come back to. Where do you where do you kind of stand? Yeah, that, that's kind of kind of that's kind of where I fall on that. You know, it's like I'm not like I, I don't I don't I don't I don't hate the song at all. Um, but it's not something I really kind of find myself uh, going back to listen to. Yeah, and it, it was funny because in the early '90s there were three like, like enormously successful hit singles named "Creep." Um, <laughs> there's uh, there's one by Stone Temple Pilots, a uh, shout out, and uh, um, by TLC. And I oh tried, nice, and they were they were all like real big hits. But you know, "Creep" of course is the best of those. But anyways, um, so. Um, my next question is uh, just kind of about Radiohead in a whole, as a whole, and it might be a little bit of a broad question, but um, you know, bear with me. What is what is it about Radiohead that makes them unique? 
Well, that, that is a good question. I mean, on the surface, they're uh, they're what a five piece band with <clears throat> three three guitarists, you know, and then your rhythm section. They've been around. I mean, what well, they met in the eighties. Um, they knew each other in in high school or or whatever it is uh, English people call high school. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, and um, and they've evolved their sound without sounding like they're like uh, pandering to any type of trends. Um, so I, I'd say that you'd kind of be hard pressed to find a, a band that has the longevity and the ability to uh, not adapt, but kind of reinvent uh, themselves as much as they have. Yeah, I think that was the biggest thing that I found interesting. I really don't know too many bands that have been around as long as Radiohead has and has never had a lineup change. Like that, right. that yeah. to me is just mind boggling. I didn't know that. I, yeah. you know, obviously, I knew, uh, you know, I knew the Greenwood Brothers and, and Tom York. I wasn't as familiar mm -hmm. with, with Phil and, and Ed, but um, I just, I just didn't. To me, it's like a normal thing that a band that's around that long goes through lineup changes. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty I mean, much every band I listen to goes through lineup changes. Oh, so, I mean, the, the Beatles had Pete Best, you know, before, yeah, exactly. uh, before Ringo hit the scene. Um, yeah, and I mean, I mean, Radiohead. I think on the King of Limbs tour, they added like another drummer. Oh, I remember but, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he was just there just yeah. since it was, you know. Um, well, I think tour touring members is a little bit different than like, right. You know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like he replaced anyone or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a great point. I just I just find it that's that's so fascinating. Um, and uh, so now we'll get into the uh, I guess the crux of the the type of episode that this is. So how would you define a signature song? Oof, that, that that's a tough one because I, I that is a tough one because I'm that's not really necessarily how I might kind of view the the lens of musicality. But I would just say a song that kind of um kind of showcases the musicianship, the writing, the um, individuals, kind of how they contribute to kind of the larger whole of uh, of the band or the music, I guess, if that makes uh, any type of sense. Yeah, that's basically like my definition of it. Um, the only thing is I kind of added in the, you know, the context of uh, popularity, right? So oh, yeah. taking into Certainly. account um, a casual listener as well as like a fan, a fan like you, right? Somebody that now I would, I would, I, I wouldn't call myself a casual Radiohead listener, but I'm certainly not at the level of like you or Castillo or, or whatever. No, so I kind of taken into yeah. di those different things. No, that's um, fair. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, yeah. So I'm not going to gatekeep you or anything. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, not, a, not, a, not about this, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you're, anyways. So, um, what would you say is Radiohead's signature 90s song, right? And we spent so much time talking song? about the difference between, like, Radiohead's 90s songs versus their, like, 2000s right. songs. What would you right. say is their signature? Like, what, what song, based on that definition that you gave me, represents their 90s sound and based on um, the musicians and musicality, right. et cetera? Right. I, I would say, honestly, I would go with Let Down. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, I just... I think you get the the interplay between Ed O'Brien and Johnny Greenwood's uh, guitar arpeggios. You get uh, the absolutely beautiful Tom York uh, vocal performance, um, and then um, and then you have uh, Colin Greenwood and Philip Selway just kind of kind of 
again, keeping everything grounded and propelling it. And I just think the actual, I, I don't know. And I think that song itself kind of encapsulates, you know, the, the, uh, for, for lack of a better word, that kind of low simmering angst with a slight element of hope that, uh, I think Radiohead at their best kind of try to tend to tend to go for. Yeah. And I, th- I think that was a big thing about OK Computer is that like it, nothing was completely pure in the sense that, you know, a lot of people associate it with like an, uh, an, an album about, you know, being alienated and, you know, yeah. consumerist and, you know, technologically rampant society. But there's definitely there's so many glimmers of hope. And, and I think that, you know, even I was like reading after I can't remember, was it climbing up the walls? Mm-hmm. Um, they had what was it after that? I think it was like no surprises was after that. Um, right. And I think they they said that they wanted like, you know, after that really dark song, like musically, lyrically, they wanted, although the lyrics of no surprises can get pretty dark. They, it's it's a like, it sounds like a lullaby, right? Absolutely. Um, so it, it yeah. really is, is interesting. There's always that, there's always that glimmer of hope from some kind of, you know, in some, in some capacity um, on that album and really in their discography as a whole. Um, but what did you think of my selection of Paranoid Android as their oh, signature uh, '90s song? Fa- fantastic choice. I mean, that, that I, I, I honestly, it's a hard time kind of arguing against that one because I mean that that's an amazing achievement of a song, um, and it does kind of again capture all the themes that Radiohead tends to go for. You know, lyrically, musically, you have you know all of the. I, like honestly i mean uh, every that part part of that song is just you, you kind of strip it yeah and listen to it on its own and it's it's phenomenal and then you add them together and um yeah and then you had kind of go through kind of the different movements of the of the piece and it's uh, it's beautiful and you know you know it's, it's i know it is a beautiful song and uh to me i love in that in the in the funkier part, I, I kind of I called it demonic funk of the uh, the the first part of the first section of the song, mm-hmm. um, right before it gets kind of gnarly. Um, oh, Colin we're... Greenwood's bass line there is just incredible. He's such an underrated I, bass player. I mean, yeah, no, no, Colin Greenwood is exceptional. Um, he's actually I think he's gonna be he's touring with Nick Cave right now. Really? Yeah. I yeah. wish he was touring with Nick Cage, but you know. Yeah, yeah, that would Only, be a fun one. That yeah. would be a very fun one. Yeah, but uh, and but it's really funny that um, so when I first heard Paranoid Android, I was in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and um, it reminded me of Pink Floyd for some reason. I don't know why it reminded me of Pink Floyd. Maybe it was because that was the most for you know. I know we don't like this term, but it was the most art rock kind of thing that yeah, I yeah. heard. Well, I don't dislike for, the term yeah, art rock. For, I just think it sometimes it can. Yeah, no, 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 de- definitely. Yeah. Um, uh. And then I remember, and so this was in eighth grade, and I thought this, but like it was, it was just like, oh, this reminds me of Pink Floyd, whatever. And then apparently, like when they first started performing the song, like Tom <laughs> Tom York would tell people it's a Pink Floyd cover. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, do, yeah, he's a funny guy. Just he reading is, about yeah. it, like he's he's a funny guy. He is. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, yeah, when I saw him uh, with the uh, at the Smile concert, it looked he, he was he was pretty funny. Like not like, ha ha funny but just like using good spirits and just kind of cheesing for the crowd it was i I think i guess i think i've told you the funniest music i've been a lot of concerts um in in life the funniest like the best banter of any musician and i wasn't i was there at a music festival like i didn't go to see this particular artist but when i saw Mm -hmm. mumford and sons marcus mumford was the funniest front man i had ever seen like i was like 
I was like, he could be like a stand-up comedian. So shout out, not to their music, but shout out to, and they have a couple good songs. But shout oh, out to well. Marcus Mumford's uh, well, at sense least, of humor. At least he's got that going for him, at least. You know? <laughs> ah, he's yeah. successful. Yeah, him, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's talented. All right. Yeah. So um, my last question for you, um, Mr. Dylan, is um, do you think Radiohead will make another album anytime soon? Um, I, I couldn't say anything about a time frame of it, but um, I, I could see them putting another album out, maybe let's say within the next five years or so, because um, I mean, God, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are both like, like their work on The Smile has been amazing so they're still doing things like they still have that uh that kind of creative uh spark flowing um ed o'brien and phil selway just kind of put out some solo albums semi-recently and then greenwood's touring with you know an absolute musical legend so i think they're probably just taking a bit of a break from the monolith of radiohead but i i i don't see that as meaning that they're done or or maybe they are, but I, I don't know. You know, who's to say? Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, Dylan, thank you so much. This was awesome. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time out um, to do this. I know this is the first time that uh, I apologize to listeners. This is the first time that I've done this uh, virtually, uh, the interview virtually. So hopefully this turns out okay. Um, and Dylan, you know, obviously we'd love to have you back on the, on the uh, podcast. Hopefully next time it could be in person. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Much love, and uh, thanks again. Hey, thank you. Much love, man. All right, take care. You too. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to my close friend, Dylan Lancaster, as I was so lucky to have him as a guest. Have a great rest of your day, and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s stand. Take care.